Hello and welcome to this episode of Science Fiction and the Fantastic Inside Out. Yes, I've renamed my podcast once again, but perhaps this one will stick. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Jeffrey Sconce, who's written a book on electronics and the paranoid delusions that people have about electronics controlling them or influencing their lives. It's a media and cultural history, so we talk about um, how uh, media and culture reflects these delusions and also how they might uh, feed into them. And, and we also discuss conspiracy theories and how that's all intermixed. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Sconce, author of The Technical Delusion, Electronics, Power, Insanity. Thank you for speaking with me. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. So first, tell me, how did you get into uh, studying and writing on this subject? Well, the book uh, started out as a history of the relationship between electronics and psychosis, mm-hmm. and in some respects, it was an extension of my other book, which I wrote about 15 years ago, called Haunted Media. Mm-hmm. And Haunted Media sort of looked at why it is that we so persistently associate electronics with the supernatural and the occult and the paranormal. Mm-hmm. And in doing that research, uh, I went back to the 19th century, back to the era of all the old mediums and seances and all that stuff, mm-hmm. and found that one of the big legal questions of the era was, how could you tell if somebody was actually talking to spirits and ghosts mm-hmm. or if they were just hearing voices and were in some sense, you know, a lunatic as they would have used the language back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so this book was actually kind of ex- taking that question a bit further by uh, looking at this symptom, which uh, most psychiatrists agree is the most prevalent symptom of paranoid schizophrenia in the 20th century is to think that the media are trying, are talking about you or, or, or spreading some kind of energy waves mm-hmm. into your body. And so I just was interested in how old that symptom was and when people began to start reporting that as a, as a symptom of, of, uh, paranoia and psychosis. Mm-hmm. So that was the genesis of it to go back and try to figure out when that actually began. Okay. So what, uh, what date range is, does the book cover? Um, it's as old, the, the symptom and thus the book is as old as the industrial revolution. So, uh, you know, the first, uh, uh, delusions involving technology where people think that technology is controlling them goes back to the late 18th, early 19th century. So the book really starts with, uh, kind of 18th century enlightenment notions about electricity and magnetism, you know, back to Ben Franklin and the kite and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, when there's this kind of new interest among natural philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, in looking at electricity and magnetism and how that becomes a, a really kind of a popular debate very quickly where there's all kinds of popular interest in the powers of electricity and magnetism. So where the, the information you, you have from, you know, the older, these older periods, of time, um, was it people who had been committed to insane asylums, or did you come across people who were reporting stuff? Well, one of the ways I researched it was I I, I tried to find every single case study I could of from the 19th century and on uh, of individuals who claimed that they were being controlled by electricity and magnetism, and so I sort of started mostly with people that were institutionalized in some respect. And in fact, one the very first extended case study of a psychiatric case uh, is this case called Illustrations of Madness from 1810, I believe is the year he published it. And it was about this man named James Tilly Matthews, who's, uh, there's been several books actually written just about him, mm-hmm. but he came to believe that the French, he was English, mm-hmm. he had gone over to uh, France in the wake of the revolution came back to England and was convinced that the French, the Jacobins, were trying to control him through some kind of mesmeristic, gaseous technology that projected magnetized gases through the streets of London and controlled him. Mm-hmm. So he was institutionalized at a, at Bethlehem Hospital in London, uh, and the person who was in charge of him wasn't trying to cure him because that wasn't the goal back then. Of, you know, you weren't trying to actually... Hmm. cure mad you were basically just trying to contain them mm-hmm. and the person who was in charge of uh, uh bethlehem i keep wanting to say bedlam because that's how we refer to it usually now but mm-hmm. uh bethlehem hospital uh wrote a long study of 
of his case and described all of his various symptoms that he reported. Um, and from there, I was just going through and, you know, the symptom just gets more and more widespread as you go through the 19th century. And then, of course, with broadcasting and radio in the 20th century, uh, it just explodes in the 20th century as a, a, a people thinking they're under some kind of remote control by electronics mm-hmm. and magnetism. So what, uh, so when you try to go as deep as you can, what, what, what threads do you see between, and, and you can break it down within periods of time. What, mm-hmm. um, similarities do you see in what people claim? Um, cause what you just described, like this, this particular individual, it seems mm-hmm. such a detailed and scientific explanation of what mm-hmm. he feels he's, he's, um, under, you know, being affected right. by. Right. Well, one of the things I, I became interested in and is actually one of the entire chapters of the book is I was interested both in how they explained to themselves what was happening and mm-hmm. they come up with these increasingly technical explanations of what uh, Victor Talisk, who was one of Freud's students, called the influencing machine. And by the early 20th century, almost all of psychiatry recognizes that this is a growing symptom. So on the one hand, I was interested in how people who were judged psychotic, and I don't want to say were, but judged psychotic, because it's always kind of difficult to know, you know, ultimately what's really going on often with these folks. But um, I became interested, too, in, in who they thought was after them. Right. So on one hand, there's this really interesting continuity where essentially technology replaces gods and angels and spirits as the thing that, you know, there's like a secular explanation now for why you're hearing voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the 16th, 15th century, those people thought that God was talking to them or demon. You know, we still have that. Obviously, there's still people who think that that there's, you know, uh, uh, otherworldly entities talking to them. Um, but. Uh, so there's this continuity which suggests that that's kind of a basic psychotic dysfunction that's been around since there's been humans, right? That this idea that they're being controlled by remote forces. Mm-hmm. But what I was interested in too, though, was not just that they were, had a technical, secular, electronic explanation for it, but who they thought was after them, right? Mm-hmm. Who it was that was behind the plot. And that's what I find really interesting, especially in our own contemporary political moment, because mm-hmm. originally, uh, people thought that their doctor was after them, physicians. You know, the most likely culprit that was trying to control you was a physician who mm. had access to these technologies. Mm. But as we go into the 19th and 20th century, and as the notion of who controls technology, who's behind research of technology, all of that becomes more anonymous and corporate and governmental, that by the 20th century, especially mid-20th century, it's kind of this faceless power that really intersects with conspiracy theory and this idea that it's the same agents, you know, it's maybe the CIA or the Trilateral Commission or, mm-hmm. um, you know, all these kind of vague nebulous entities that people think are just kind of out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly in the last 10 years, it's just exploded with, uh, you know, like, you know, what's the group now that's so big that's um, the Q people, the QAnon people who think that yeah. there's this... You know, huge conspiratorial power out there that's, you know, uh, behind everything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one interesting too, is not just the technology, the actual, uh, forces and, and entities of power behind the technology that, that seem to be the thing that's threatening the paranoid. Mm-hmm. Now, do you see, did you see rates of this sort of, um, complaint or this, this claim? Do they seem steady across the population, or do you see uh, bursts or declines at some points as technology adjusts or changes, or, or something else affects that, maybe? Yeah, well, this is actually, and I should point out, I my background's in history of media, electronics, mm-hmm. cultural studies. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't speak to the actual clinical mm-hmm. incidents or data of this stuff, but, mm-hmm. from, but having read deeply in psychiatric case studies, there does seem to be a, a huge debate now about whether or not the number of people who are becoming clinically paranoid is increasing mm. in in recent years, especially. Mm. Uh, there's a book by uh, uh, called "The Invention of Paranoia," I believe, or no, "Paranoia: 20th Century, 21st Century Fear," 
by uh, uh, brothers. They're the Freemans are the names of the last names. I don't have the first names with me at the moment. But, mm. you know, their argument is that psychiatry estimated for years that about 2% of the population at any given moment was clinically paranoid. Mm. And then they did all this recent research where they discovered that the number is actually much higher than that. Mm. Uh, you know, maybe something like 10 to 15% believe that, you know, would qualify as being clinically paranoid. Mm. And whereas psychiatry typically has not been interested in thinking about technology, mm-hmm. I think they're having to change that a bit. And so that's another theme of the book, which is, you know, to this day, psychiatry does not have an, an official designation for believing that you're being controlled by technology. Mm-hmm. They, they still maintain these very broad thematic categories of, you know, delusions of control, delusions of influence, mm-hmm. and whatever it is that's you think is controlling you, whether it's witches or the weatherman on TV or extraterrestrials, they typically haven't made a distinction among those things because they felt like it's just, you know, secondary to the main symptom, which is this idea that you're being controlled. Mm-hmm. So one of the arguments I'm trying to make in the book, and I hope maybe we'll have some an audience with some folks who are interested in psychiatry and psychology, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, that the technological aspect of it probably should be taken more seriously if only because it looks like there is something about contemporary media that's allowing, whether it's through the spread of conspiracy theory and this kind of group paranoia people have, mm. or people talking themselves into these increasingly paranoid ideas, or the way that uh, new media are undermining basic kind of markers of shared truth and public culture so that nothing's a fact anymore. You know, nothing, mm. there's you know, ever since 9-11, I would say, too, especially with the truther movement mm-hmm. and then Obama and the birther movement, that there's just no set of facts that anybody will ever really invest in anymore entirely. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean in terms of trying to judge who's psychotic, who's not, in terms of what they believe? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the general research, too, that says that um, a lot of this new media technology, especially social media, is contributing to higher incidences of depression, uh, especially among millennials. I don't know if you've, you've seen statistics about uh, the amount of teenage girls, especially, who report depression and anxiety related to social media uh, is just like doubled in the last 10 to 15 years. So uh, so in that respect, um, I, don't, I, I think that technology is contributing or certainly appearing more prominently within both what we might call neurotic and psychotic disorders. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if the te- I don't know if technology is necessarily causing that, but it does seem like there's that relationship is increasingly noticeable and being discussed among uh, psychiatrists themselves. Now, I'll list a few um, a few sort of uh, things in entertainment and media which make me wonder. Um, as I list them, the question I have is how much are they um, just a consequence of seeing the rise in what we're discussing or maybe help contribute to it as well. And I'm thinking, uh, War of the Worlds, the book and the, you know, Orson Welles, um, radio uh-huh. show, um, Twilight Zone, you know, the old, the old series and even the new one, X Files, you know, I, I, thinking of those kind of paranoia type shows. Are they yeah. a reflection, a contributor or what, how does that work? Yeah. Well, certainly, um, you know, take something like the Twilight Zone, and and actually, I wrote a lot about the Twilight Zone in my other book on haunted media because mm. uh, at that point, I think television was still so kind of magical and mystical. You know, this idea that you could have images in your home that were from all around the world. Mm. That Rod Serling uh, in that show, and then also The Outer Limits, which mm. is the other show from that period. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you think how The Outer Limits opens, it's all about we've taken control of your TV set, and there's nothing you can do about it, and there, we can do all the stuff to you. Mm. Uh, that yeah, there's always been this idea that there's something uncanny about television, mm. and or electronic media generally, I should say. And so, yeah, there's been this long tradition of of being suspicious of electronic media because they do seem to simulate living exchanges with people so that even though intellectually you might know that, you know, you and I are not in the same room, we're just communicating through electrons, through wires and satellites, there's still that uncanny sense of co-presence. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these shows, you know, The Outer Limits and, and Twilight Zone especially, had so many haunted technology episodes. Uh, I guess maybe maybe the ones, one of the better remembered ones, the one where uh, 
the child, there's a kid whose grandmother passes away and she's calling him through this telephone hmm. and trying to get the kid to basically, you know, commit suicide so that he can join her in the afterlife, right? Yeah. So there were all those the kinds of stories. But when you get to the X-Files, though, you know, the X-Files was really prescient, I think, in kind of, you know, this kind of conspiratorial view of power and technology and the idea that the government has access to these secret technologies, which I guess in that show was attributed to, you know, things they had gotten at Roswell, right? You know, they'd stripped these UFOs at Roswell of all this, you know, high-tech alien technology and were using it in some kind of nefarious plot to control the world. Mm -hmm. um, that, that that kind of conspiracy theory has strangely become mainstream now, right? Mm -hmm. And one group I talk about in the book, Two are these individuals called they, they call themselves targeted individuals. Yeah. And targeted individuals are people who very seems to very sincerely believe that they are being attacked by microwave technology, that the the most likely culprit is the CIA or DARPA, the military, mm -hmm. you know, that they're that they're guinea pigs in some kind of DARPA project. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they found each other online, and they go, they have conventions. They go meet and talk about what the government's doing to them. Uh, some of them believe that they're being – some of them attribute their symptoms of fatigue and irritability and kind of classic symptoms of depression. They attribute to these government microwave experiments. Others actually hear voices, and they and they call this V2K technology, which stands for voice-to-skull technology. Okay. And, and they think that the government's actually putting voices in their heads. They hear voices and they think it's the government doing it. Hmm. And what I find fascinating about them is that, you know, 20 years ago, they probably would have instantly earned a psychiatric admit and would have, you know, been evaluated and probably diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. Hmm. But because they've all found that each other online, yeah. they've kind of created their own mutual delusion where they all kind of agree on the same reference points about hmm. who's doing it, how they're doing it why they're doing it and in a weird kind of way they remain sort of oddly functional mm -hmm. because they've actually been able to sort of all invest in this idea that whatever it is the government the military uh is after them uh you know experimenting with them on these with these technologies right mm -hmm. uh so yeah so that that leads to a question which is these these individuals through the whole period that you cover the 200 some years do you see, so these symptoms can be, um, detrimental to a person's life. It can have no effect. You know, as you say, they can just continue functioning or perhaps it could even have a productive, um, effect on their life in some way. Uh, it, can you address that at all? Right. Well, I mean, this gets right into the whole thorny issue of, and this is something else the book talks about a little bit, which is the whole history of the politics surrounding psychiatric diagnosis mm. and how do, you, how do you have criteria for Because if you think about it, you know, if a person, you know, hallucinations and delusions as the classic markers of psychosis mm. are ultimately only knowable to the person who has them, right? The only way anybody else can ever know if that person actually has hallucinations or delusions is by evaluating them through their speech and kind of interpreting them, right? So mm -hmm. it's always been this thorny issue of, you know, you can't test for hallucinations and delusions, right? Uh, and so for a long time, if you look at the DSM, which is, you know, the, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, in, which is like the Bible of psychiatric diagnosis, and how it's changed itself over the years trying to get a more precise definition, mm -hmm. um, and so they used to they used to diagnose delusions based on the idea that they were ideas that aren't commonly shared and are held on to with extreme conviction. Hmm. And one of the fascinating things about these technical delusions is that that criteria has been erased, right? Because a lot of things that psychotics would report say that, you know, that they can hear voices or that they have a brain chip. I have a chapter where I talk about brain chip implantation and people who think they have brain chips. Hmm. Well, now we do have brain chips, yeah. right? Uh, those <laughs> actually exist. So one thing, you know, they had to adjust was, well, now we can't really make it around beliefs that just seem too far out there because what happens when science catches up to the beliefs? <laughs> and so now you just can't tell a person brain chips are impossible. That's science fiction. Well, now they exist, right? Mm -hmm. So then it becomes, then the DSM moved to a, a category of, uh, 
okay, it's not about how implausible it is, but rather whether or not they're willing to surrender a delusion if it's demonstrated that it's empirical evidence showing that it's wrong, mm. count evidence. Okay. But of course, in conspiracy theory, there's no evidence I can offer you that will tell you that the government isn't trying to control you because if you think DARPA is after you or DARPA is experimenting on you, there's no limit to their power to basically rewrite reality in a way that, that any kind of counter evidence somebody might provide you is always going to be suspect because you're in that paranoid reading code. Anyway, the long story short of this is there's been some folks, some people within psychiatry who now make the argument that you shouldn't really intercede into delusions unless they are having a negative impact on the person's life. Hmm. So now it's about sort of, you know, if you if you believe you have a brain chip and you are completely convinced of that, and yet you are able to show up and go to work and not cause harm to other people and whatever else, God bless you, you know, just leave you alone, right? But hmm. if you are, uh, you know, having some kind of idea where you're constantly worried about it and thinking it's really obsessing you and it's really causing problems, uh, then, you know, then there's this notion that, well, then you should probably intervene. And then, of course, the worst case scenario, people who, a lot of these targeted individuals, not a lot, but some of them, I, I should reiterate that, you know, one of the things that, that psychiatrists are constantly trying to emphasize is that most people who are diagnosed as schizophrenic uh, are not violent in any way, shape, or form, but there is a small subset that will act on these delusions. Mm-hmm. And so there has been a number of recent cases, like, for example, the uh, the uh, shooter in Annapolis, the one who shot up the Navy uh, yard in Annapolis, I guess, about four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had been going to targeted individual websites and had posted that, you know, that he believed he was a targeted individual. And so the extreme cases where you would really want to intervene are people who feel they have to take action against these powers mm-hmm. that they think are after them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that addresses the question, but I guess mm-hmm. the idea is that, you know, they. I, I think psychiatry is now moving to this idea of live and let live. <laughs> that you know, just because you believe something that's crazy, you know, they're not going to really intervene. Crazy in quotation marks. Right. No, nobody's really going to intervene unless you. It's causing you trouble, or it's a, or it's a threat to people around you in some way. Mm-hmm. So I also wanted to ask about um, as as governments or state institutions get larger and more powerful, and can create you know, larger electronic systems um, and combined with the fact that, you know, the U.S. government has secretly experimented on people and admitted later, like Tuskegee, you know, with the the biological and uh, even atomic bomb testing with U.S. soldiers before they knew about the effects. And and that actually they let the soldiers know. But, you know, there are things that have been done which help feed into these paranoid theories. And again, as the government gets larger and larger and more entrenched and powerful in a sense, you know, how has that increased? I think you've been addressing it, but maybe you can add more to that. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, one of the, one of the places that's interesting, I mean, one of the chapters is structured to talk about how conspiracy theory, psychotic delusions and science fiction all used to be relatively distinct categories Mm-hmm. but how they've increasingly overlapped with each other so that mm-hmm. science fiction is more and more about conspiracy and psychosis. Yeah. Psychosis is more and more about conspiracy conspiracy and science fiction, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the program I'm thinking of is MKUltra, uh, which was mm-hmm. the government's... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, the CIA's long program where they destroyed all the records in 73 when they basically got caught what they were doing, uh, where they were doing, you know, drug experiments, psychiatric experiments... Uh, Naomi Klein in Shock Doctrine talks a lot about this doctor in Montreal who thought he was curing, ostensibly seemed like he was trying to cure schizophrenics, but was essentially putting them in drug-induced comas and making them listen to repetitive taped messages Mm -hmm. in a way trying to reboot their ego, like to basically erase their sense of identity, to reconstruct it, right? Mm -hmm. And they've never actually definitively um, linked him to the MKUltra Program, but a lot of people think that there was probably MK Ultra money involved in there. So, uh, uh, one of the things that conspiracy people who study conspiracy theory will talk about is that the reason conspiracy theory is so appealing is because power, you know, the government, technology, all this stuff has become so huge and so Byzantine and is constantly expanding. 
that it gives people a very easy way of thinking about how power operates when the real truth is that no one's really in control of anything anymore, right? I mean, yeah. uh, if I can look to DARPA or I can look to the Trilateral Commission or the Bildenbergs or people and say, ah, those are the people that are secretly doing all of this, it still gives you that old-fashioned conventional notion of there's somebody out there that I could fight against and resist, yeah. whereas the more troubling kind of postmodern aspect of it is that that these technologies are so ubiquitous and doing, you know, that's why the AI debate is so huge, hmm. that they're already kind of just working on their own and nobody's really in control of any of this stuff. Hmm. And there is no center, there is no, you know, nodal point where you could actually sort of attack the powers that be. They're just everywhere. And the psychotics seem to be pretty much ahead of us in terms of hmm. thinking through at some level, right? So, yeah. Um, and we're bombarded with, um, Lately, the new, you know, our, your jobs will be replaced by robots. AI will be taking over everything. You know, right. it's, if the media is feeding everyone this, then it's, then it's surprising that, that not everyone is paranoid at this point, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and then you've had some of the, the, I, there was that, um, cyber theorist, Jared Lanier. I don't know if you know him. He, mm -hmm. he, early on, he wrote, he was one, I think he's the inventor of HTML. Again, I, I don't have my notes with me, but, you know, he's, a, you know, kind of a big authority in terms of like the new digital platforms and economy. And early on, he was one of these kind of cyber enthusiasts about, oh, this is great. It's going to revolutionize the world. We'll all have equal access to information and education. You know, this kind of utopian vision that's been around electronics ever since the telegraph, quite frankly, that, you know, every, every new technology is going to bring peace and understanding and all that. Uh, but about 10 years later, his most recent book is about, you know, I've really rethought this. <laughs> hmm. And that actually what these technologies are doing in terms of this hyper-quantification of everything, hmm. this kind of trying to understand people and uh, the world through big data, that he's really kind of become much more of a pessimist about how hmm. this technology is actually basically hurting us into these uh, kind of new forms of uh, servitude. Mm -hmm. or essentially, you know, just exist to have data sucked out of us in the interest of global capital, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was really struck by the fact that, you know, one of these early architects for this stuff has really become kind of paranoid himself about this, you know, and thought, you know, I don't know that this is going in the best direction, you know, this technology, right? So, Well, it makes me wonder, you know, if, as you fear technology and these effects that it's going to take over your mind and your society – is that just being a scared Luddite or is it, you know, or is, is, are things getting better, but people just have to learn how to manage and understand it better? Yeah. I, I again, I would say it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, another group I talk about just a little bit in the book are the extropians. I don't know if you know the extropians, but this, this is a group of people who are convinced that I guess the most famous one is, uh, Ray Kurzweil at Google, who mm. talks about the singularity yeah. and this, mo this notion that they keep changing the year, but they think like 2030, 2040, whatever, we'll hit the singularity mm. and we'll truly all become kind of these hybrids where technology is thinking and doing more for us than, it, than we're doing for ourselves. And there'll be this kind of notion that a, a place where we become cyborgs to the point where there's no return, mm. which I think is already happening with a cell phone, right? I mean, you know, one of the things I try to talk about in the book is how the cell phone is essentially a brain chip that's too big to be implanted yet hmm. because it's basically doing all these functions that we want to be able to just do mentally and not have to use our hands. Yeah. And eventually hmm. we probably will do that through some kind of subcutaneous implant and that will be how that works, right? Hmm. Uh, but the extropians, their ultimate goal is this idea that we'll eventually download our consciousness into digital avatars of the brain. Hmm. And we'll be immortal by living, you know, our, our, our egos will be immortal by living as pure energy within these electronic digitized avatars. Hmm. And there's serious work going on at this. I mean, the, the Harvard lab, there's a lab at Harvard that, you know, is doing quite a lot of work in how you, we can digitally map the brain hmm. and find some way to trans, like Frankenstein, right? They really hmm. think they're going to transfer the brain. Uh, hmm. and so there's, there are these people who have this utopian idea about it. Like we're all going to basically live forever as electronic, you know, consciousness. But I think what those people miss is that they have this very benign view of technology. They always think that technology just technology just is what it is, and it can be put to good or bad uses, mm -hmm. and then eventually it will be put to this utopian use. 
but they I don't really consider the fact that technology always takes a certain form in relation to power. Yeah. And and the technology that we have now, uh, you know, if you look at social media, the internet, all of these things that were supposedly created, you know, whoever invented the internet, be it Al Gore or the government or whoever, mm-hmm. uh, what was essentially a collective social medium that's been completely taken over by corporate interest and global capital and it's not benign. There's an actual agenda behind, you know, the, the structure of that media, how it gets to our homes, how we use it, mm-hmm. all of that stuff, which I think they don't really want to contend with. They just sort of think that tech, you know, technology is this magical, apolitical thing mm-hmm. that will eventually have this utopian impulse. But we can be just as easily subjugated by it as we can be mm-hmm. released by it, right? Yeah. And I guess that's always a struggle. It's a huge political struggle that's been going on for a hundred years now, quite frankly. Yeah, the movie Matrix actually jumped to mind um, as we were talking. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yeah, it, no, absolutely. Uh, and I, I forget which pills, which red pilling and blue pilling. Blue pilling is the uh, is the uh, taking up the fantasy, right? Red pill means you live in reality. Blue pill means you live in the fantasy. But yeah. uh, I think they're perfectly happy to be blue pilled, right? You know, if you if you're just living in a computer somewhere and you think you're climbing Mount Everest or whatever, mm-hmm. that would be great, right? So. Uh, Yep. But yeah, that debate's been going on since, you know, uh, especially since the advent of mass broadcasting, where this idea of what this technology is going to do and who's going to control it, you know, this has been a debate that's been around for a hundred years at least. So yeah, I I love science fiction, but now I begin to worry that, you know, science fiction does it help us? Does it warn us of the future, or is it is it just creating more <laughs> paranoia about where we're headed? Yeah, well, I think that's why. You know, of all the science fiction authors of of kind of the, that golden mid-century era of science fiction writing, you know, I, I don't want to rain on anybody's preferences, but uh, you know, I, a lot of people think he's a terrible writer, but he's actually been the person who's been the most prescient of all the science fiction writers is Philip K. Dick, hmm. who had this intensely paranoid vision of where all of all of this stuff was going, hmm. and so whereas Bradbury and Heinlein and all these other kind of classic writers of that era often now seem kind of dated in a way. Mm. Uh, Philip K. Dick seems very prescient. You know, he's obviously, he's most known for Blade Runner, mm. obviously. Uh, mm. But so many of his novels were kind of predicting this world where we would create information technologies that would basically, you know, do us in at some level, right? Mm. Uh, and of course, Philip K. Dick himself, uh, and this is another chapter in the book, Philip K. Dick himself appears to have had some, I don't, they don't know if it was like an actual psychotic break, but he had some kind of strange crisis in the early 70s, mm-hmm. uh, where he thought he was living in two time registers at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he thought he was Philip K. Dick living in 1974, California, mm-hmm. but he also thought he was a Christian living in Christian times named Thomas. Mm-hmm. And so his later novels, uh, uh, Valus, uh, Vast Active Living Intelligence System is what it stands for. Hmm. He became convinced that there was some kind of extraterrestrial intelligence that was beaming the Earth with some kind of, you know, uh, hmm. energy ray or something that would, you know, potentially lead to beatific religious kind of epiphanies. Hmm. So Bill K. Dick himself is like an interesting character because he was sort of straddling that that line between psychosis, science fiction, and conspiracy itself, right? So, How much do you think um, these electronic delusions, how much are they also combined either with um, religion or drug use or, you know, drugs being involved in what's going on or even, I guess maybe now you can include genetic engineering, you know, the biological, you know, how is electronic delusion its own thing or does it always or sometimes get get mixed up with these other things yeah it's a good question i mean yeah i guess you could say some of the you know there is all that work that's been done about how the 60s counterculture the kind of lsd acid culture in california slowly morphed into the san francisco silicon valley uh cyber culture right and i guess maybe the most emblematic figure there is timothy larry who uh, went from being the acid king to, uh, you know, being really interested in cyber technologies. Um, I will say some of the, uh, this doesn't exactly address what you asked, but some of the people who are targeted individuals 
will make the argument that they've been drugged at some point in order to have an implant put in them, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so it's not that they think they're that their hallucinations and delusions are being caused by being secretly drugged, but they they believe at some point where they've had some kind of blackout of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them actually accuse their dentists of mm-hmm. putting the implant in because they they were you know knocked out for some wisdom tooth procedure or something and think that's when they got the implant. Uh, but in terms of the the attributing their symptoms, it's it's purely about microwaves, electronics. Uh, you know, actual ways of, of, of sending messages directly into the brain through, uh, through these various kind of microwave technologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interesting period there would maybe be to see in the 60s if people thought that, you know, I guess, and because in MK Ultra was using drugs and acid, there's a notorious stories of them on giving people LSD without their knowledge to study the effects of LSD on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might have seen more ideation around that back then, but, uh, um, and I don't know about genetics. I would have, I certainly, a lot of the, uh, conspiracy theory today is obsessed with the idea that there's some kind of genetic program that the gov- the one world government is trying to work towards. But, hmm. uh, but I don't know how many people that are diagnosed as psychotic necessarily believe that. Hmm. So we haven't yet talked about how, how do you break down the book? You know, how, how do you lay out the chapters? Um, well, I can just give you a quick overview. The, the first chapter is just on the the durability of the symptom, how it's become so prominent, mm-hmm. and also kind of looks at the history of psychiatry and discusses why it is that psychiatry has basically not wanted to talk about the what I call the technicalities of the technical delusion, the fact that they didn't want to think of technology as a special type of delusional presentation. And then uh, the second chapter is really specifically on the brain chip and all the all the complications that brain chips offer to psychiatric diagnosis. Uh, one of the things that I work with in that chapter is there's a, a comic book that was printed in the early aughts, early 2000s, mm-hmm. uh, and the idea is it's a comic book that a doctor is supposed to give to somebody if they think that person is on the threshold of a psychotic break, meaning you know there's this period called the prodrome period, prodromal period, where... The person hasn't actually started to have manifest delusion and hallucination yet, but they're clearly in some kind of distress and, and probably need intervention. Mm-hmm. And so there's a comic book called The Secret of the Brain Chip uh, that basically explains that if you think you have a brain chip, you don't. You probably are on the very beginnings of this psychotic episode and you should seek help because the longer mm-hmm. you go without seeking help, the more entrenched the delusion will become and the more difficult difficult it will be to recover. Mm. So uh, I use the brain chip as a way of saying, like, what's changed since the 50s to 2000 to now? Mm. That how do you talk a person out of that delusion? It's, you know, you it's very difficult now, uh, like I said earlier, especially now that those exist. Mm. So that's on that community and, and talks a little bit about why it is that you know, if, if I tell you that I think the CIA has put a brain chip in my brain and that they're listening to my thoughts, you'll probably think I'm crazy. But if I say that angels follow me everywhere and angels tell me what to do and angels protect me from things, that that's completely normalized and we don't really regard those people as psychotic. So a lot of it's about the politics of culture and what hmm. will what we'll think of as being psychotic behavior and what's not. Hmm. Um, then I go back historically and I look at the histories of electricity and magnetism to sort of talk about why it is that those two forces are so prominent and how they kind of moved into the technologies as we get into the 19th century. And mainly there, it's an interest in the difference between conductive technologies and inductive technologies. Hmm. So the kinds of two ideation of people thinking that something's actually in the nervous system that can be controlled rationally and is conducting energy and messages through them mm-hmm. versus inductive energy, which is like kind of the energy of the occult and radioactivity and something that's just out there as a vibe that's controlling mm-hmm. them in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Then there's a chapter I said earlier, which is about who it is that's imagined to be behind this control. So it charts it from the early 19th century where it was about physicians up through the eras of radio and into the internet and how power becomes increasingly faceless and anonymous and, and 
and the, the people that you think are after you become more and more abstract in some respect, right? Um, and then, uh, boy, I just threw myself. What's my final chapter on? Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, the final chapter is, uh, you know, I'm going to look. <laughs> I, I'm confusing my book because I thought the final chapter was a thing on technical delusions, but now I realize, oh, no, it's on targeted individuals. I'm sorry. Hmm. So the, the last chapter is actually looking specifically at targeted individuals as the most contemporary example hmm. of this. Uh, and then there's a postscript actually talking about um, James Holmes, you know, the Aurora, uh, the, the, the shooter who uh, shot at the theater in Aurora, Okay. You know, shot like, uh, you know, almost 30 people, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that screening of Batman, uh, The Dark Knight Rises or whatever, who went into the theater and, okay. and yeah. how he's kind of been adopted as like the new Oswald by these, by this community, hmm. uh, because they think he was a patsy that was actually being controlled by the government and, uh, all these efforts to kind of, uh, you know, sort of explain the unexplainable through this idea that he too was being targeted in some way. Hmm. So yeah, sorry I had the brain fart there about it. No, no. <laughs> no. so they kind of blend. Sometimes they run together. You know, so no, that's fine. Um, so let's talk. You've mentioned a little bit about what you used for your research. Can you go into a little more detail about where you found uh, what you used um, for this? Yeah, well, uh, like I said, a lot of it was actually just going back and researching old medical journals. So I did a pretty thorough read of uh, a journal that eventually would be called the Journal of Nervous and Mental Conditions, I think, but it originally was called the Journal of Insanity because that was the word they used back in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And so some of that was, you know, just doing the usual kinds of searches you do through search engines, but I also went back and since so much of that stuff eludes us, uh, a lot of it involved going to the New York Public Library, and there's a there's a really excellent medical library in New York too, where I just read through case studies, you know, uh, very quickly trying to get a sense of of you know the uh, you know what kind of symptoms were being presented, and then reading to sort of see the similarities and differences as we go through the different eras. Mm-hmm. So I would say almost all of it was about reading uh, was kind of reading old psychiatric literature, and especially these kind of uh, not the major works, but these kind of long forgotten journals where, you know, psychiatrists are actually talking about their individual case studies. There's a lot of Freud in it. Uh, I'm really sort of interested in Freud's relationship to all of this stuff, uh, as he was writing. Uh, so it's a combination of a lot of primary materials in terms of, of, you know, looking at old psychiatric writing, uh, as primary material, but also, uh, some of the contemporary work as people are trying to think about, you know, what does it mean to be paranoid now and so on. Mm-hmm. Read a lot of conspiracy stuff, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, read a lot of books off Amazon, self-published books by people who mm-hmm. are, you know, talking about chemtrails and uh, uh, especially targeted individuals. A lot of them have written their own books. Yeah. Uh, uh, and kind of the miracle of new media and self-publishing is that you know, if you've got the, I don't know how much it costs to self-publish a book on Amazon, but, you know, if you can coherently enough get 100 or 150 pages together explaining your theories of something, mm-hmm. uh, you can get it out there, right? So I've, I've probably read 15 or 20 of those books where people are describing the, the progress of how they came to realize they were being targeted uh, and looking at similarities there as well. Do you, do you feel like you developed a sense for um, people who, actually do seem to be under this de- these delusions versus people who are just kind of writing it to play out the conspiracy thing and you can maybe tell aren't really yeah delusional right I, that's a great point because I think a lot of conspiracy theory has always been about this kind of playful fantasy of wanting it to be real right. so I think there and I think there's that same thing with targeted individuals I think a lot of them if you read their accounts, it seems that they are genuinely suffering, and a lot of them do seem like they are undergoing some genuine psychiatric crisis of some kind. But there are also some that do seem like they just like the idea that there's some kind of, you know, worldwide conspiracy, and they want to play with that idea. And so that, you know, just as the when I said originally, the line between people who thought that they were talking to the dead back in the 19th century versus those who were hearing voices was hard to distinguish now that line between conspiracy theory and targeted individuals and psychosis is really hard to distinguish because 
I think there is this kind of popular fascination with conspiracy theory where it's kind of fun to imagine there's a secret behind everything versus those who are really relying on that as a way of kind of keeping their their sense of self intact by imagining that everything that's happening to them is because of this, uh, you know, uh, conspiratorial power. So, uh, yeah. So I, you know, I try not to judge though. I mean, my, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't, I'm not trying to say this person's officially psychotic. This one's not. Right. And in some respects, I'm more interested in the fact that the people who are, are and are not would both be endorsing the same narratives, right? So that, whether you're just a cons- just a conspiracy theorist or whether you're somebody who is having an acute psychotic episode, the fact that they would both go to MKUltra and DARPA and the same entities as like the architects of their of what's happening to them, I think that's significant too. Mm-hmm. So, what part of the research was most enjoyable? <laughs> Boy, it's hard. Well, it's always, I mean, like any researcher, about halfway through a project, you start to have a thesis that you think is true. And so the more things you find that are confirming what you are thinking, that's always enjoyable because you sort of, not that, you know, doing kind of cultural history is not a science, right? It's not a science in the way other sciences are. You are still working with doing interpretive work and kind of akin to like literary criticism at some level. So whenever you can find something that really, you know, confirms what your general thesis is, those are always the most pleasurable moments. I guess I'll say my, 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 my favorite find in the book was I found a, uh, a case study from the thirties about a woman in, in New York who was a German immigrant who, uh, was writing letters back to the newspapers in Berlin protesting the rise of the Nazis mm-hmm. and eventually came to believe that that the Nazis were after her through her radio. But then she starts to incorporate people like Freud and Andrew Carnegie. Mm-hmm. And why it was an exciting find was that it really confirmed my idea about what radio was doing in the 30s, which was – you know, she had this really global kind of psychosis where all these people that would be in control of media, but also in control of occult energies of the mind, like Freud. You know, her delusion ultimately brought together radio, German Nazis, and psychoanalysis in this really interesting way that was very much about what the 30s were, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so when you find something like that, you think, ah, oh, I'm on to something here, right? So yeah. uh, I guess it's the needle in a haystack pleasure, right? When you finally find these little nuggets that actually fit what you're trying to argue. Oh yeah. Uh, those are great moments. I definitely, yeah, I understand that. Um, what was the most surprising thing you came across? <sighs> Boy, that's interesting. Uh, I guess initially the thing that surprised me the most, I think was how, how this delusion has been around for 200 years and how resistant the institution of psychiatry was about thinking of it as a specific type of presentation, Mm -hmm. right? So I was kind of, uh, to me, it seems it would matter whether or not a person thought the devil was after them or the CIA was after them. If only because it seems that, that that belief, even if both are delusional and psychotic, they're bound up in different types of systems of meaning and, and cultural beliefs and, you know, and, and then I, I guess what surprised me was to see how robust that debate has been through psychiatry, uh, through its history of whether or not you should account for cultural difference, historical difference. Mm-hmm. Do people, do people go psychotic or manifest psychosis differently at different times or is it something that is truly a hardwired neurological dysfunction that's as old as as our neolithic ancestors or is it this fungible thing that you know there's different tolerances for it there's different standards for it and that's been a huge debate in cultural and political theory in the 20th century uh, i guess i was surprised kind of a meandering answer but i guess i was sort of surprised to see that i think there's increasingly more sympathy to that argument within psychiatry itself because there have been a number of people who you know, are arguing that we should just get rid of the term schizophrenia, that it doesn't really describe anything specific, mm-hmm. uh, that are kind of acknowledging more and more this kind of 
cultural and historical specificity of how presentation and diagnosis works in these, in these cases. What question or issue was the most difficult to research, and maybe you still haven't answered it, you know, to your satisfaction? Um, well, I, you know, I don't mean to be redundant about it, but I guess, you know, in some respects, I don't think they'll ever solve that debate because uh, this debate between kind of the nature-nurture debate, you know, which has always been going on about, you know, are these completely about neurological dysfunctions that create these things, or can culture, in a sense, make us go crazy? Can culture drive more and more people to psychotic behavior? Uh, and I think that's the thing I'm most interested in at the moment, especially, you know, I can't say that I answered in the book because I wouldn't presume to have the hubris to answer this question that people have been fighting about for 200 years. But I think that question is more central now than it's ever been mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like thinking about kind of the radical transformation that our sense of self and our sense of identity our sense of community is undergoing by virtue of these new interactive uh, technologies uh, that, you know, the age of old paranoia where it was about, you know, Big Brother controls the television set and spies on me in the room, that that's really given way to this, whatever, this new kind of way of being in the world that we're having to adjust to with new media, uh, that I'm, uh, that's the thing I'm most interested in now, I think, is sort of thinking about what are these technologies really portending for the future of just our happiness, mm-hmm. uh, much less just uh, uh, whether or not they have a, a real accelerant kind of factor in terms of various kinds of neuroses and psychoses, uh, just in terms of how they affect our sense of self more broadly. Um, so that's difficult to know and mm-hmm. probably impossible to know, but it's certainly something I'd like to keep thinking about. Was there anything you discovered that had an emotional impact on you, either positive or negative, as you did your research? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I don't want to sound like the bloodless researcher who just, you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean, certainly, I, you really kind of, I think it kind of makes you empathize with how many people have suffered from this delusion over the years and, you know, just really, especially in reading some of these targeted individual narratives of just what a, weirdly, they, they both seem to cling to their symptom because it's the thing that gives them their identity and holds them together. But at the same time, you have, you can't help but feel for a lot of them because of just the incredible imposition it puts on them in terms of their daily life. Uh, you know, that even though they're functioning, they're functioning in a very kind of miserable way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, you know, that was kind of sobering, especially to realize I, I think just how global the fun, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. The, you know, targeted individuals, they see themselves all over the world. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, it's both kind of poignant that they found each other, but also kind of alarming that, that so many of them are suffering so badly by, you know, in believing that this is happening to them. Mm-hmm. I guess going through all those journals, um, was there ever a, a, a time you, you felt you just had to steal yourself for the next clinical case you were reading? You know, did it ever become <laughs> pretty tough? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess there's always that hazard of self-diagnosis too, right? Yeah. You know, if you're a hypochondriac, uh, you know, especially as you read about kind of the symptoms of early psychosis, right, whether it's this prodromal phase, and you start to think to yourself, well, gee, I've kind of had some of those symptoms <laughs> in the past, right? There's been periods where I've kind of felt that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, in a sense, there was that kind of wanting to kind of maintain a critical distance from all that stuff. Because, I, you know, it probably would be pretty easy to talk yourself into something if you uh, dwelt on it too much, I think. But, mm-hmm. So what do you what, what do you hope the book will do? Well, you know, it's it's kind of a weird book in that it's, I mean, it's right, it's at different audiences, right? And so on one hand, you know, my my background is in media history and cultural history. Mm-hmm. So in one, one respect, I'm hoping media scholars will look at it just to sort of see another way of thinking about the history of media and electronics and how, you know, the, the fact, the reason that the title is Electronics Power and Sanity is to bring out the idea that that ever since the advent of electricity and, and electronics, which I call the politics of electricity, right? The form that we make electricity take is the electronic, right? Hmm. That, that, that that's been something that's always been at stake through the history of 
media from the telegraph on, right, or even just from electricity on, is thinking about how those things are related. So in some respects, I'm, my main audience, I would say, probably is media historians and cultural historians. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I, you know, it'd be thr- I'd be thrilled if there's actually some people in, you know, psychiatric and psychological communities who find something of use in it in terms of, of uh thinking about, you know, if this symptom is so prominent and is growing and is actually becoming more mainstream and weirdly, um, I don't want to say becoming accepted, but but the way that the people who are experiencing it are finding ways of creating communities, mm-hmm. um, that there might be something useful there for, for people to think about, you know, as they see more and more people who are sort of presenting with this idea of, of being controlled by some kind of electronic technology, why they think that. Because one of the things this book tries to unpack is the whole archaeology of, of that symptom of why would people, why would we just think that you could have that done to you, right? Mm-hmm. And so both on the side of the agents of power behind it, but also on the side of the technology of trying to bring out how that symptom has cohered and changed over the centuries that might be useful to people to kind of understand why people would think that or why, or why a delusion would take that course rather than say angels or the devil or whatever else, right? Mm-hmm. That term, uh, the politics of electricity is interesting because that brought to mind a previous question about, I, I, I think of the giant, um, those giant structures that carry the huge electric cables, you know, the yes. electricity cables, which, you know, some people feel like they're emanating waves that are changing their brains and, and then giant satellite dishes, you know, that's it, that imagery scares people and just all the, the massively sized machines that we create. Well, you know, the, there's a, there's a, an amazing film that really gets at this in a beautiful way, a film by Todd Haynes called Safe mm-hmm. with Juliana Moore made, I think, in the mid nineties. Uh, and it's kind of, her whole thing is she, she thinks she's suffering from environmental poisoning, mm-hmm. uh, that things like, you know, hairspray and things are bothering her. And the whole movie, it's brilliant because the movie, we never get a definitive explanation of whether or not she's really being allergic to this environment or she just hates being a housewife in Santa Clarita and she's finding some way to get out of it. And it's, it's really brilliant film. But what made me think about that is that, no, there's a huge overlap with the electromagnetic uh, poisoning community. These people who think that power lines do poison people. And, and let's face it, we might think that we're more rational. We would never believe stuff like that. Mm. Nobody wants to buy a house that's underneath yeah. power lines. Right. Yeah. Because there is an assumption that they might not be putting voices in your head, but there's something bad about living next to huge amounts of electromagnetic current running through the air. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so, yeah, there's huge overlap. And in fact, one of the uh, the last thing I'll say about book pitches here, but, um, you know, for years there was this uh, uh, kind of small small marketplace of, of people selling products to help you uh, alleviate symptoms of electromagnetic poisoning mm-hmm. uh, so that if you live near electrical lines and thought that you were getting dosed with with EMF energy, uh, you know, there's certain things you could buy and so on to try to alleviate your exposure to that. Well, leaving no opportunity un, untaken, uh, those companies now market explicitly to targeted individuals. And if the, uh, if the old kind of stereotypical marker of this symptom was somebody putting a tinfoil hat on their head, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the way we use comically to denote somebody who's crazy. We, you know, they, they put tinfoil on their head. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's a very desperate attempt to keep, they think, the energies that are going into their head out of their brain. Now there's companies that actually sell products that do that. So these companies mm-hmm. sell things like lead-lined baseball caps. Mm-hmm lead-lined uh, T-shirts and camisoles and underwear, uh, and it's a, actually a new market for them. It's basically selling these anti- things that they used to sell to people who were worried about power lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, they now sell to people who you know think the CIA is getting in their brain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I found that very fascinating that... You know, there's, you know, capitalism, there's no market that you can't eventually exploit, right? So even if there's people who are manifestly psychotic, you could still sell products to them to help them think they're going to protect themselves, right? So. Huh. It'd be tough going through a TSA checkpoint wearing one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd have to take all that stuff off, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, no. did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published? Um, no, I'm publishing, I, you know, my first book, uh, 
was with Duke University Press, and you know they've been encouraging me to get this done, and it took a long time because I kept changing iterations, and uh, it seemed like I was almost done a number of times, but then something else would happen that I think, oh, I've got to address this. And, uh, but so the only thing that prevented get, you know, the only delay in getting it done was the fact that it's hard to write about the, it's easy to write about distant history, but when you try to bring it to the contemporary moment, it gets more and more difficult because, uh, things keep happening that are, are, you know, even recently the, this, this hysteria about the embassy workers in Cuba and in China who thought that they had been, uh, dosed by electromagnetic micro, by microwave energy and this kind of idea that there was some kind of diplomatic crisis around those governments perhaps using energy weapons on our, on our, uh, embassy people, our embassy personnel. That, so, well, I have to talk about that, you know, so it just keeps spreading new examples, uh, to get it done. But, uh, but yeah, but once you finally just decided to put the foot down and say, okay, well, anything that happens after this has got to be for somebody else because I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> And I hit that point about a year ago, I think. So. Okay. Uh, what's your next or your current writing project? Um, the next one is, uh, you know, is another kind of extension from this, I would say. Uh, but I've become interested in, if this book was about individual delusions and psychosis, um, the new one I'm looking at, uh, something called a paracosm. And a paracosm is another psychiatric term that doesn't have official status. In other words, it's not something that you will see in the DSM or any psychiatric textbooks, but it's kind of a term that some people use. And what a, a paracosm is a, uh, refers to these fantasy worlds that are often created by, sometimes by an individual, but often by a group of people. Uh, and it's most common in young adolescents. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Heavenly Creatures. Uh, hmm. It's a Peter Jackson film, but it's based on a famous court case in New Zealand in the 50s where these two girls became, they were both I think 13, 14, which is the classic age for this, and they both became really invested in creating this fantasy world that they had created together, that they co-authored. And so I'm interested in that in terms of narrative and fantasy and this kind of borderline, I don't want to call it psychotic behavior, but it's this idea of like, you know, children when they start young children have imaginary companions and that helps them learn how to socialize with people. Mm-hmm. And then adolescents often have these paracosms, these worlds where they draw maps and create little fantasy universes mm-hmm. where they kind of control the world that they create. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how some of those people go on to become authors, right? Uh, and become famous writers mm-hmm. and others kind of, uh, have neurotic issues around that. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm, Mainly, I, it's a complicated thing. Obviously, I haven't thought it all the way through yet, but, uh, uh, but these kind of fantasy worlds that are multi-authored and taken as real, very intensely real and meaningful to people, mm-hmm. usually for about four, three, four years, and then they give them up. Uh, oh, but not always, right? Because I'm, I'm interested in it also from the perspective of like two people who maybe create their own fantasy kingdom. Mm-hmm. But also people like Star Trek fans who have created the whole world of the, of the Federation and the Enterprise mm-hmm. for 50 years now and how meaningful and real that world is to people. Yeah. Not in a delusional sense, but in a fantasy play sense, uh, trying to account for the intensity of that, of that fantasy and that investment. Yeah. I mean, it crosses over into just being a very elaborate sort of social, uh, cl- club, you know, with people with their own secret little, you know, outfits and, and terminology and body language and whatnot. Absolutely. And, you know, and having been a, you know, I was a huge Trekkie as a kid myself and just how meaningful that world is, just the kind of just longing and yearning that people have for it to be real. Mm-hmm. And even though you rationally know that it's all shot on a soundstage at Paramount and, you know, and you go back and you look at the early episodes and they look like the most dated 60s mm-hmm. TV, mm-hmm. but that wanting that, that fantasy of wanting that whole universe to really be a real thing. I'm, I'm trying to think about how that's just something that starts in adolescence. Lord of the Rings, you know, mm-hmm. Middle Earth, mm-hmm. these kind of things that are very much targeted at that sensibility, uh, and how they become more and more corporatized and mm-hmm. monetized and, 
uh, you know, how Paramount now, you know, Star Trek will outlive us all, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a story that will be around long after we're gone, and there'll still be people that are really investing in that world. You know, it's I find really interesting. Yeah. Um, where can people find the book online, and do you have a way for people to follow your thoughts and, and whatnot? Um, the book's at Amazon, like everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also available at Duke University Press, at their website. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I had a blog. I'm thinking of bringing it back. I had a blog that, that was kind of actually widely read for a few years that I had to kind of give up to finish the book. Hmm. Uh, but it's called Ludic Despair. Uh, it's at ludicdespair.net, I guess, uh, whatever the uh, blogger site is, or just Ludic Despair will find it. Uh, and it's kind of a pop culture um, blog. I would say, but there hasn't been anything new on there for a while, but if people are interested in just going back and looking at old stuff, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's still plenty of content there. What, how do you spell that? Ludic, like L U D I C, mm-hmm. like ludic, like playful. Mm-hmm. And then second word despair, you know, ludic, so playful despair essentially was the, you know, idea behind the site, but ludic despair is what it's called. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So thanks for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.